Though there are a couple verses that are highlights and probably most every Christian has heard of them or quoted them. Many times they are quoted out of the context in which it was written and we fail to see the rich background and purpose that's found in this book. Actually, this book is one of the most relevant. Now, when I say the most, of course all of the scripture is relevant, but this has particular relevance for the day and age in which we live in the church of Jesus Christ. Because many of the same problems that Jude was writing about, you and I confront. And the the church of Jesus Christ has housed within it. Just by the tone of this letter, it's a trumpet call to defend the faith. James Moffat called it a fiery cross to rouse the church of Jesus Christ. And as you see, it's a very short epistle. You know, it's got 24, 25 verses in it. It's very short. But that was his style. He could say a lot in a very short period. And we're going to cover this book very slowly, very methodically, so that we might understand not only the problems that faced the church when he wrote, but how to counter them. So we'll take an in-depth look at it. Just reading the book of Jude will give us a lot of knowledge as to the condition of the early church at the time of its writing. The problems that the church faced and faces today. Especially problems whenever there is a revival or a great work and movement of the Spirit of God. Whenever there is a great work of God, there's always a great reaction in hell. Satan doesn't like great works of God. Great revivals of history have always been met with an onslaught of the enemy to push them down and to squelch them. And we see that in the book of Acts as we were studying it, that God poured out His Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Great persecutions were the reaction. As the church spread throughout the world, there were doctrinal problems, half-truths that were being spread about Jesus and about the faith that divided men over these issues. That's somewhat the background of this book. It seems that Jude began to write a letter of encouragement. He wanted to write about the common faith and salvation that all Christians face. And it was probably going to be this uplifting letter of encouragement speaking about the common faith. But there arose problems within the church, i.e. false teachers. That sort of forced him by the Spirit of God to take a different direction. And so he says in verse 3, Beloved, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Most of the um, New Testament was written as occasional theology, meaning there was some occasion, some specific thing that happened or teaching that was circulating that caused the men who wrote the New Testament to be pricked in their hearts because of the condition of the church. And that occasion prompted them, again, by the Spirit of God, moved by the Holy Spirit, to write some of the letters that were written. In other words, if the church needed encouragement because of persecution, a letter of encouragement was written. If instruction was needed, instruction was given. If exhortation was needed, exhortation was given. And Jude has an occasion to it. There is a reason that he writes this harsh, stiff, strict letter. 
And I use those words, and as you go through it, and we read it together, I think you'll agree that it is a very severe, one of the most severe letters in the New Testament. It sounds a lot like James or Second Peter. But there was an occasion, that was the rise of what we will call apostates. In fact, we just covered Acts of the Apostles. You could call this series Acts of the Apostates. Now, I'd like us all to just read this book at a setting. There's only 25 verses, and then we'll make comment on the first few ideas in it. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our Lord God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, Though you were, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. I see three separate messages in verse 11. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging ways of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved... Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. 
These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building up yourselves, or building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some, have compassion, making a difference or a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them from the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Heavy duty. And we plan to cover it thought by thought in the next several weeks. Perhaps now until the Lord comes back. Don't know. But certainly we want to do this great epistle, though it's short. It's packed. We want to do it justice. I said that the occasion of this letter was because of the apostates, the false teachers. In fact, we could call this, as I said, the acts of the apostates rather than the acts of the epistles. The word apostate is a word that means to fall away from, to fall away from. And there's predictions throughout the New Testament that many would fall away from the faith. It means one who departs from the faith due to sin or because of false teaching. Originally in the Greek language, the Greeks used the word apostasia, to apostatize, to fall away, meaning a political defection. Those who would defect from the body of Greek law, they were called an apostate. They became a traitor to the government. The New Testament, however, uses it as a spiritual traitor. Because of sin in their lives, compromise in their lives, selling out to the ways and the values of this world, they fall away or they fall away due to false heretical teaching. Now, you remember, we read it in Acts chapter 20. Paul the Apostle gathers all of the Ephesian elders together. He's on the shores by the sea. He's about to go to Jerusalem. He weeps. And he doesn't weep because he's not going to see them anymore. Principally, they did weep knowing they wouldn't see each other. But he saw into the future. He said, I know that this church will be split. That false teachers, wolves, will come in not sparing the flock. Even some from among your own ranks will rise And they won't care anything about the flock, not sparing the flock. The prediction is issued several times in the New Testament. To name a few, 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines taught by demons, or doctrines of demons. There's a warning in Hebrews 3 that says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And once again, Peter writes, in the last times, he says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Well, the time Jude writes this, it's between 70, 60 and 70, or 60 to 80 A.D. 
And all of those predictions had already come true. There was false teachers, false professors, falling away from the faith and leading many in the way with them. And as you've already noted, there's a lot of strong language in this book. I want to just draw your attention again to verse 12. This is a description of the men themselves, the false teachers. They are spots or blemishes in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He absolutely blasts them. you got to understand something about Jude. He was not a theologian per se, Though he knew the Bible, obviously, listen to the things he quotes. But being more than an astute, eloquent theologian, he was a straightforward Bible teacher who loved his flock, who loved his flock enough to warn them about false prophets. One of the jobs of every pastor to shepherd sheep is not only to feed them the truth, but to protect them from poison. Every one of them that was good in the New Testament did that. Even Jesus did that. He protected from false teachers. Paul did it to the extent of naming people's names. People who had denied the doctrine of the resurrection, he named. People who divided the body of Christ, he named publicly in epistles. If Paul were around today and gave some of his epistles, I'm sure he'd get letters. Paul, you don't have enough love. If you really love people, you wouldn't name them. Hey, I'm naming them because I do love people. I love my flock enough to name them. Who were they? Who were the people that he's speaking about in this epistle? It sounds so harsh. There were a couple of groups of people, and this is sort of the method tonight. I'm going to go through the groups of people that he's writing against and then see if there's a modern counterpart. Now, there isn't an exact duplication of the heresies in the early church today, but they are here in type. Some of them are very blatant. Some of them are dangerous, but not widely noticed. They've crept in slowly over the years in the church. Those apostates that Jude was writing about, there was a group called antinomians. That was one of the people he had in mind when he wrote this. Now, you may forget that term. I don't know. I mean, you might think, that's, I'm not going to, what does that mean? But what it is important you understand is what they stood for. Antinomians were a group of people who perverted God's grace. The word antinomian comes from two words, anti against namas, the law. They were against the law. And what they said basically was that I can live any way I want to live. I'm justified freely by grace through faith. Therefore, there is no constraint of any law, including any moral law whatsoever. In fact, the more I sin, the better it gets. Because, and they misquoted things like, where sin abounds, grace overflows. So I can do anything I want to do because the more I sin, oh man, I'll just get overflowing grace. So they saw themselves as absolutely free from any moral restraint whatsoever. Antinomians against the law. They believed that grace is supreme 
And the only need was to be obedient to the immediate guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. They were free from moral constraint, especially biblical law, the Old Testament. They only needed to obey the immediate guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is what they said. Ever met people like this? They will blatantly deny the Scripture by disobeying it in a lifestyle contrary to the Scripture, but they say, well, I prayed about it. I feel like God doesn't mind, and I feel like the Holy Spirit said it's okay. That's an antinomian. I met a guy who came up to me who was living with a woman, sleeping with her, having sex, and said, well, listen, he said, I prayed about it. Well, you may have prayed about it, but you didn't wait for the right answer. Well, how dare you judge me? You see, antinomians look at Christians who live after the Scripture and obey the voice of God in the Word as legalistic. That's how they'll view those kinds of Christians. Oh, you're so judgmental. I've been to that place and they just judged me. It could be that they lovingly put their arms around that person and tried to lovingly extract him from error. Oh, they judged me. A modern antinomian is one who lives in a moral lifestyle while claiming to be a Christian. Remember the book of Corinth, how often Paul writes about the immorality in that place. There was division, but there was this incredible sexual immorality even where there was incest going on. And the church tolerated it. That's because antinomianism had crept within the church. Living in a moral lifestyle, claiming to be Christian, living under the spout where the glory comes out, doing whatever they please, calling it the grace of God. Jews had Jude, in this epistle, has them in mind. In verse 4, he says, they turn the grace of our God into lewdness. In verse 7, he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah that had like problems. Look over in verse 16. Describing them as walking after their own or walking according to their own lusts. John Calvin speaking out against this particular doctrine, which has permeated the church since the time of the early church, even up to his time. He said, We are not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt, but in order that our purity may serve the glory of God. So that was one of the groups of people that Jude had in mind when he wrote this letter. But there was another group, a group you've heard of before, it's a little more familiar to you, called Gnostics. If you were with us when we covered the book of Colossians or Ephesians or 1 John or some of the many epistles in the New Testament, we mentioned Gnosticism because Gnosticism pervaded the early church for the first four centuries. Its predecessor was antinomianism and it kind of flowered into Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed several things. First of all, This universe consists of two basic principles, two basic forces, matter and spirit. There's the material universe and there's the spiritual universe. According to the Gnostics, all that is material is evil, all that is spiritual is good. They said God is good, thus God could not have created the material universe because the material universe is evil and God is good. So God didn't create this universe. The question arises, who did if he didn't? Well, they had an interesting, wacky theology for how the world came into existence. It's even wilder than evolution, which is hard to beat. They said that God created aeons or emanations that went out from God 
over periods of time. And as these beings, created emanations, went out farther and farther and farther from God, there went out from God an emanation so far that it didn't even know God, and it was hostile to God, and it could touch the material universe, which was evil. Thus, an emanation that went out from God, who didn't even know God, intimately, in love, became hostile to God, created the material universe. They went so far as to say that there was two different gods of the Scripture, a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament, two distinct beings. The God of the New Testament was the God of love and revelation, seeking to win man because he was good. The God of the Old Testament was the God of vengeance and judgment, the emanation that created the world, out to destroy man. They viewed Jesus in a strange way as well. They said Jesus was good. And because Jesus is good, he could not have had a physical body because we know that the material universe is evil. And so they had fanciful stories in their writings how Jesus would walk on the sand and the disciples would look down and he wouldn't leave any footprints. Or that Jesus would walk, instead of using the door of houses and buildings, would walk just right through the walls. All throughout his ministry. Because Jesus couldn't have had a physical body because the physical material universe is evil and Jesus is wholly good, having the nature of God. Secondly, the Gnostics believed, and we're going to make references to this as we go along and see how it applies to us. The Gnostics believed that the chief aim of man was to achieve contact with God. Now, that doesn't sound all bad, except the way that you achieve contact with God is to allow your soul to travel through all of these links, these emanations, to know them deeply and intimately with this unique kind of knowledge that only the Gnostics had until you eventually achieve contact and unity with God. To do this, you have to have a special knowledge. That's where the word Gnostics come from, gnosko, to know. They had a, an elitism. We're different than your normal Christians. We're in the know. We're more sophisticated. Oh, these simplistic Christians who just believe the Word of God and that the Bible is sufficient. What a bunch of dunces. I'm in the know. I have a special kind of knowledge whereby I'm achieving union and unity with God. That was the teaching of the Gnostics. Very exclusive. They divided men into two groups. They looked at all human beings as being one of two people. And they gave them Greek names. Number one, Sukiko, soul man. Second group, pneumatikoi, spiritual man. There were people who lived according to the soul, and many Christians were like that. Then there were those who were the spiritual initiates into secret, private, special, godly knowledge. These were the Gnostics, the spiritual men. Of course, they considered themselves that. A third part of Gnosticism, and see if this has a ring to it, that every single person had a spark of divinity within him. In fact, man can become a god or can become like God. There's a spark of God within every man. It has to be nurtured by enlightenment and special knowledge. Now, there are no Gnostics 
in that sense today. The description I've given you fully. There, you can't go and look up in the yellow page and say, okay, Gnostic churches, Gnostic... Oh, there's one. First Gnostic church of... No, you won't find it. Though you will find a modern counterpart to Gnosticism, just like there's a modern counterpart to antinomianism. Let me give you a few suggestions. Now, I've got to say something, a disclaimer here. I'm not out to pick on people. I'm a shepherd. I don't relish controversy for controversy's sake. I'm not afraid of controversy. If it needs to be done, I'll do it. I don't look for a fight. I don't look to find things that I can pick on or find a scandal. All right, I'm going to get, ooh, that's going to hurt. I can't wait. Not me at all. I don't like that at all. But being a shepherd, I believe that Part of the job is to teach sheep the truth, even if that means exposing error. And on many of these subjects, we have many good books in our bookstore, as well as many good Christian bookstores that house orthodox, that is, historically straight biblical teaching. But there is a modern counterpart, a few of them actually, in Gnosticism. First of all, we know that the Mormon church teaches that men can become and will become gods if they're good Mormons. They believe in the revelations of the Mormon church, Joseph Smith and the rest, and they submit to Mormon doctrine. Secondly, there are so-called churches, cultic movements. Christian science is one. The Unity School of Christianity or the Church of Unity. Science of the Mind, New Thought Metaphysics all believe that humans have within themselves a Christ consciousness, a higher consciousness, a higher self, the real you. You must tap that, and you must, by conscious awareness, achieve that Christ consciousness. Mary Baker Eddy, one of the founders and proponents of Christian science, said, the Christ or perfect man is the true spirit, higher self of every individual. Then we also have a modern counterpart in the New Age movement. Sounds pretty obvious. As I describe Gnosticism, I mean, you can be blindfolded and figure out that the New Age movement buys into many of that teaching. The New Age believes in pantheism, meaning everything is God, and everything, uh, God is a part of everything, and everything is God. You're God, I'm God, the pulpit's God, the door is God. It has its roots in Hinduism. Everything is divine, has the spark of divinity within it. One of the gurus of the New Age movement said, Kneel to your own self. Honor and worship your own being. God dwells within you as you. The New Age believes that change in the universe comes through raising your consciousness. That's how change comes. That's why you visualize world peace. It's conscious. It's... it's, You know, I heard George Harrison in an interview recently saying, nothing else will work but just getting... And so you have these um, uh, moronic um, um, harmonic convergences (laughs) where people get together at the strategic points of the earth and they'll harmonize together and they'll meditate and they'll visualize. Well, look statistically at how the world has changed for the better since then. I don't see much change. But that's one of the beliefs of the New Age movement. There is another counterpart in Gnosticism that I find disturbing because it is coming into the church at large, not just the cults, but the church at large. 
I wouldn't call it Gnosticism per se, but it has the flavor of neo-Gnosticism. It is what I call the little God's doctrine. It is taught blatantly by men like Earl Polk, Robert Tilton, Charles Capps, Kenneth Copeland, and Kenneth Hagin. You can chase down their own writings. Earl Polk said, Adam and Eve were placed in the world as the seed and the expression of God. Just as dogs have puppies and cats have kittens, so God has little gods. We have trouble comprehending this truth, I'll say. (laughs) Until we comprehend that we are little gods and we begin to act like little gods. A lot of people do, I notice. Until we do, we cannot manifest the kingdom of God. Robert Tilton on national television said, You are a God kind of creature. Originally, you were designed to be a God in this world. Man was designed or created by God to be the God of this world. Of course, man forfeited his dominion to Satan, who became the God of this world. I see roots of neo-Gnosticism all over that. I see it being piped into homes all over the country by certain teachers, and I'm afraid of it, frankly. Then I see roots of Gnosticism in other areas that I am also concerned about. It is the idea by some Christians, and they could be in many camps, that Jesus Christ is not enough. That somehow to just believe that the Word of God applied to a life mixed with prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit can change a person is so naive, so simplistic. We need something more. And Christians who believe that lack sophistication. One of those areas that greatly disturbs me is modern psychology. In some cases, so-called Christian psychology. I'm not, I'm not down on Christians who know psychology, okay? I'm not down on Christians who study psychology. I'm down on the religion of psychology that seeks to usurp itself above the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. It's a movement. I had lunch with a Christian counselor in this city. And over lunch, I said, you know, we were talking, I said, now... I don't want to be too forward, but let me get this straight. Are you saying that the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit and prayer are not sufficient to change people and to deal with the problems, almost any problem that a person might have? He said, that's correct. That's exactly what I'm saying. In some cases, it's absolutely not enough. We need psychological techniques and methods. Here's one of the problems with it. What I have read of the many psychologists that exist, innumerable, is none of them agree with each other. It's not an empirical science. It's not a science. They call it the science of psychology. It is not, by definition, a science could never be constituted as one. There's no empiricism behind it. You can't put it in a test tube and see those kind of results like you can in true, bona fide, physical science. It is a philosophy. It is a methodology. And they're all conflicting. None of them disagree with you or agree with each other, which shows that it is not a, a, a true bona fide science. The techniques that are used in many Christian psychological offices are methods borrowed from atheists. They are. Who have a basic belief system 
that God doesn't exist, that there's really no hope for your problems in anything that is spiritual, but through their methods. Now, now listen carefully. I'm going to give you a little axiom. A person's theology determines their methodology. I'll even go on further. A person, a person, okay, a person's theology, their belief system about who God is and, and life and so forth, determines their method. A person's anthropology, his belief on the nature of man, will determine his methodology as well. If you believe that man is innately good, i.e. modern psychology, if you believe that there's a spark of good or divinity in every person, all it needs to be is channeled or funneled, and what you're going through is because of your parents or your environment or somebody did something to you or dropped you on your head when you were a baby. It's not your fault. You are a victim totally. You are not responsible for how you are. Your method of treatment will be far different from a person who says, I believe man is a fallen creature from God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's a gap of sin between God and man that has to be bridged. Your approach will be totally different. And your results will be different. A person's anthropology will determine his methodology. Your belief in the nature of man and theology, the nature of God, will determine how you approach that person to get the job done. I'm not opposed to the term psychology. Don't get me wrong. It can be very enlightening. In fact, it's a good term. It means the study of the soul originally. And did you know that Christians a long time ago used to call counseling the work of the soul or the cure of the soul? I love it. It has in its root Christian biblical connotations. Your soul is troubled. There's reasons why you act the way you act and the way I act. And psychology can view a person. You can look back over the past history of a person and find out why he does that. His father did that or his mother did that. And that's fine. But in determining a cure of the soul, which is what psychology was originally designed for, Christians very much, Orthodox Christians differ from modern psychology. So compare those forms of Gnosticism, neo-Gnosticism, with Jude. Look at verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and for every man. There's hope in those words. you got to understand, you might be a little skeptical with this. I don't know if the Bible can really make a difference. Hey folks, we're dealing with God here. God isn't sitting in a Freudian office with glasses and a cigar out of his mouth reading books. He's the God who created the universe, who's all-powerful, who spoke the earth into existence, who maintains all of the atomic structure continually. Nothing's too hard for him. I don't know, God. It's an emotional problem. I don't know if you can handle this one. This is God we're dealing with. He created people. So the purpose of this letter is to exhort to encourage, to exhort, to uplift, and to warn. It's sounding a trumpet. And then so he uses in verse 3 that word. Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That word exhort in that sentence, in the original language, 
is the wording of a general in the military giving orders to the army. The book of Jude, I'll be candid about it, has a very military orientation to it. It's tough. It sounds like a drill sergeant waking you up in the morning, sternly warning you, giving exhortation. There is, by the way, in the New Testament, a gift called the gift of exhortation. It's not the gift of condemnation. Some people feel they have that. But there's a gift of exhortation, which means to stir up to action. Teaching is laying a foundation. And teaching, you don't see the immediate fruit of it always, like you do in evangelism or an exhortation, where people immediately respond. Teaching, you lay foundation over weeks and months and years in people's lives. Exhortation comes along, though, and stirs people to action. It's a beautiful gift to have. It's sort of like riding a skateboard. A teacher will describe the mechanics of the wheels, the bearings, the level of the skateboard, the dynamics. The exhorter will come along and give the kid a push. Say, ride the thing. Now that you know it, do it. I was trying to teach my son, who's almost six, to ride a bicycle with two wheels the other day. I went down and up and down the street as a teacher, first of all. Had the training wheels on. And I was on my bicycle showing how it leans and trying to get... And so then I, he said, Dad, take those wheels off. I'm ready for it. I said, all right. I took the wheels off and I held the bicycle. And I said, now let go. Just put your weight in my hands. I'd start gently guiding it to the left. And he'd feel it and he'd want to counterbalance. I said, no, let your body do the balancing. You can counter steer, but don't counterbalance. I didn't use those terms, but... <laughs> that probably explains why he fell, actually. <laughs> Finally came the exhortation. You can do it. Do it. I let him go. He did okay, but he did fall. That's all right. He learned what I was teaching him about the warnings of what will happen when you do fall down and how to fall in a protected manner. He'll do better next time. A combination of teaching and exhortation is powerful. You read Paul's letters and they're filled with teaching and yet he divides it up toward the end of his epistle. It's heavy exhortation often. Combination is powerful. One or the other you can become imbalanced. Now, in verse 1 there's a description of the man. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's all the description we have of this man in this book. Jude is a common name, so common that we find six people named Jude Or the formal name is Judas in the New Testament. It's the same name. It means praise. There's several of them. This Jude is no doubt, as most scholars believe, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. The brother of James, who is also the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now we're dealing with another tender topic here. When we deal with Jesus having flesh brothers, because there are certain people who believe as I grew up believing in Mariology. And I'm not, I'm just, I'll just speak the belief system as it lies. The idea that Mary was conceived immaculately without sin, that Jesus was born without any opening at all in the body itself of Mary, It was sort of an apparition of Jesus. She didn't really break the womb. And that Mary continued in what they call perpetual virginity all of her life, 
having no children after her, nor, no normal relationship with Joseph. And then the assumption into heaven where she was taken up into heaven has none, has no bearing in the scriptures whatsoever, but by tradition. That's the teaching as it lies. She was conceived immaculately, thus no sin. She's the co-redemptress of the human race, as the teaching goes. She was always a virgin, and then she arose into heaven as Jesus did. There's no bearing in the Scripture. In fact, the Scripture teaches that there were brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ by Mary and Joseph. Jesus was born with a virgin birth. The Holy Spirit implanted within the womb of Mary, and Jesus came forth. After that, however, it would seem that Mary and Joseph had normal relations. And there were half-brothers, half-sisters. When Jesus went to Nazareth, listen to this. It says, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this his mother? Or isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude? And aren't these all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? After Jesus' birth, there was normal relations between Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary had at least four sons and two daughters. Could have had more, but at least. These are the ones that are named here. I admit, the Protestant church has really done a disjustice to Mary over the years. They've basically neglected her. She was an extraordinary blessed woman. The scripture says that. Blessed are you among women. But she's not the mother of God. She was not divine in any sense of the word. She was not perpetually a virgin and she did not ascend into heaven. The scripture doesn't speak about that at all. While Jesus continued in his earthly ministry, his own brothers, when I say that half-brothers, James, Joseph, or Joseph, as he's called in another translation, Jude, and so forth, did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. For we read in John's Gospel, chapter 7, when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. They didn't believe in him. They dared him to go to Jerusalem, which according to earthly logic was a perfectly logical, great thing to do for any kind of a public figure. Jesus had done most of his miracles in Galilee. Hey, if you want to get notoriety, you want to be a public figure, you claim to be the Messiah, go to Jerusalem and pull these things off. That's where the Jewish high court is. That's where you need to conduct your business. Jesus didn't listen to him. He said, my time has not yet come. You go. And his brothers went and Jesus remained behind for a while. Why? Because the scripture says that we're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And at this point, Jude... James and the rest were giving ungodly counsel. Spiritual light does not come from natural relationship. It's not passed on through the seed. In other words, just because Jude and James and some of the others were half-brothers of Jesus did not make them perfect. They didn't believe in him until much later on. In fact, the Bible says after the resurrection. But let's go on. It says in the book of Mark, chapter 3, Jesus entered a house. 
And again a crowd gathered so that his, he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. It's right there in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Opposition was growing with Rome, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees against the ministry of Jesus. And his family tried to dissuade him from his ministry. He's nuts. He's out of his mind. The old King James says he is beside himself, a term that means, you know, he's one burrito short of a combination plate. <laughs> they, didn't, they thought he, was, he, he didn't have all of his faculties with him. He wasn't eating. He was working all day long. He's out of his mind. And they sought to lay hold of him. However, after the resurrection, we know that James came to believe in Jesus. James, the author of the, God, of the epistle of James in your Bible, the leader of the early church in the book of Acts, he came to know Christ. And we, we can uh, almost bet on it that probably during that time or shortly after, Jude did as well. For we read in the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul gives the gospel, that he died, he was buried, and he raised on the third day, according to the scripture, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. So James, Jude, Joseph, and the others, those skeptics, it seems that some of them turned and followed their half-brother, knowing that he was the Messiah. And so... We read in the book of Acts chapter 1 that the family of Jesus, these guys, Jude, James, and the rest, were in the upper room praying with the disciples, waiting for the Holy Spirit. Though there's no mention of Jude in the book of Acts or in the other epistles, the only thing we find of him after mentioning it in the Gospels is right here in the epistle of Jude. He writes a short, to-the-point letter defending the faith. And notice how he introduces himself. James, he doesn't say, James, the half-brother of Jesus. He says, James, a bondservant of Jesus. And the brother of James. The word servant is the word doulos. It means bond slave. It's the idea that I am owned completely by a master. In Greek custom of the New Testament, there, were, there was a relationship. There was the kurios and there was the doulos. The kurios was the master, the doulos was the slave. The kurios owned, basically, virtually, the doulos. The, the slave had to do whatever the master wanted. Jesus made reference to it. He said, which one of you having a servant? If he works hard all day out in the fields, would your servant come in and say, you know, I'm a little tired, I'll eat and then I'll give you food? He said, no. Your servant would give you food and would tend to your needs and then afterwards say, he'd say, I'm just an unprofitable servant. I've done what is my duty to do. So that's how you are, ought to serve the Lord. And so he says, I am a bond slave, sold out completely to Jesus Christ. Now, he could have really capitalized on his relationship with Jesus, but he didn't. He liked taking second place. I love that about him. I really respect a man. I mean, he talk about the ultimate name dropper. Yeah, <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah, you're just, yeah, by the way, my uh, brother, Jesus, you know, uh, <clears throat> we grew up together and let me tell you a few stories of the things he did and, you know, he could have made a lot of money on that one, but he didn't do it. He mentions that he's the brother of James, but not the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He was content to take second place. You know, some people love important titles. 
They capitalize on it. Often I'll meet pastors. I'll say, what's your name? They'll say, Reverend so-and-so. And and, and depending on what mood I'm in, (laughs) I like to get past the reverend. Say, come on, your mom didn't give you that name. (laughs) What's your name, man? Reverend George or John. John, good to meet you. Because the Bible says holy and reverend is his name. It's the only other, the only one time it's used in the scripture refers to God, not a man. I don't want to take that upon myself. I'm introduced as that, and when I am, I usually say, oh, by the way, I'm not a reverend. I'm a servant. That's it. Some like the doctor title, the reverend title. Most distinguished. Nah, bond servant, slave. There was a sign that read on the door. There is no limit to the good that a man can do if he doesn't care who gets the credit. He didn't care who got the credit. He's a bond slave of Jesus. He let James get the credit. I'm the brother of James. You know, the guy who wrote the letter. (laughs) It demonstrates, number one, his humility. It also demonstrates priority. The most important relationship is a spiritual relationship to God that supersedes every single other relationship. My relationship with Jesus Christ should be held on such a level that I don't just have to say, oh yeah, really, God is the, really the most important thing to me, but you'll never see me obeying Him in my life. And a lot of people will claim, oh yeah, God, whatever God wants. They're supposed to say that. But in reality, God occupies the most important place in a person's life. He's the master passion. There's a sense of priority in this introduction. James. Servant of the Lord, bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Natural relationships are subordinate to the spiritual relationship. Now, uh, since we're speaking about the issue of Jesus' family, let me refer you back to the Gospel of Matthew. In one of the chapters, we read, While Jesus was still speaking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside. And they wanted to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He wasn't saying, I don't love my family. He wasn't saying that at all. He loved his family, folks. He loved his family more than his family loved him. On the cross, the last command he gave was for John, his disciple, his, his follower, to take his, Mary, his mother Mary and take her home and care for her. He loved his family. But he was saying that the most important relationship is a spiritual one, the relationship we have with God. Here's my family, he said. Here's my family. Then there was that instance of a young man coming and seeing Jesus in the distance. He almost started worshiping Mary. He said, blessed are the breasts that nursed you. Jesus said, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. The spiritual relationship to take uppermost. Judah's servant. You could put your name right there, couldn't you? I hope. Pete, a bond servant. Sally, 
a bondservant. That's the relationship we have primarily to Jesus Christ. I'm yours, God. I'm yours. And I want to serve you. And I want to take second place, even when that means serving others. And Jude took the place of serving others to warn them about the antinomians and the Gnostics and so forth. True service, taking second place in the body of Christ. That's what we need today. Not celebrity servants. Servants. Ruth Harms Cocken once wrote this poem. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know how my genuine enthusiasm is at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. That's character. Reputation is what people think you are. Character is who you really are when no one's looking. Judah bond servant permeated his life. You don't hear about him except in this epistle, really, of any consequence as a leader. Now, next time we'll tackle the second half of that verse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You said that prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit. We know, Lord, that You prompted the writing of these letters, that Your Holy Spirit was very active in causing the early church leaders to see the problems and to write about them in their own language, in their own style. But the result was the very inerrant Word of God, complete, so that Peter could say, we have everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. So, Father, I pray that we would not be beguiled, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, with empty philosophies and vain deceit. But we would see that Christ, our Savior, is enough and gives resources to deal with virtually every problem that can beset us. I pray that as believers we would not feel inadequate, but competent to give out spiritual truth as we learn it and to trust that the Spirit of God can change a life when the Word of God is applied to a child of God. Lord, how we thank You for Your infinite resources. And I pray, Father, for all of us, the same prayer that Paul prayed when he wrote the beautiful little epistle of the Ephesians, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we would know it is the hope of our calling and the inheritance that's ours in Christ, the resources that are ours, how much you love us and what's at our disposal. I pray, Lord, that we would not be timid but bold, but bold in a loving way, compassionate way, being direct, contending for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints in a way that would be glorifying and pleasing to you. We want to exalt Jesus in our midst and in his precious name.